Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Vinay Begat, founder and CEO of TrustRadius, an ex-founder and CEO of Convio. In this episode, we talk briefly about Vinay's unique educational background, the biggest takeaway he got from being a student at three of the most prestigious universities in the world, and the moment he realized he was destined to become an entrepreneur. Vinay also shared how he prevents churn when a champion leaves his customer's company, how he maintains retention by continuously educating customers, and how companies can adapt to the modern buying process. We also discussed how to apply the voice of customer into your marketing and product development cycles, why transparency is the inevitable future of the buyer's journey, and how you can drive more reviews from your customers. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hi, Vinay. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, we first connected on LinkedIn actually very recently. Uh, I was really surprised while well, they've managed to connect. And obviously, we want to jump on the opportunity to have you on the show. Uh, a topic I think uh, today's episode is going to be really interesting. We'll touch on it in a bit. But for the listeners, uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, Vinay is the CEO and co-founder of TrustRadius, a customer review platform for business technology. And prior to TrustRadius in 1999, Vinay uh, founded Convio, the leading SaaS platform for nonprofits. And 11 years later, in April 2010, Convio became a public company and was acquired in May 2012 for $325 million. Prior to Convio, Vinay was a director at Trilogy Software and a consultant in Bain & Company in London, Hong Kong, and Kiev. And he also holds degrees from Harvard, Stanford, Stanford, and Cambridge. Uh, and that's actually where I want to start the show today because it's obviously a very, very impressive um, CV and career that you've had to date. Uh, I think as well, like the, the degrees that you hold from three of the most prestigious uh, universities in the world is definitely an interesting topic. And my first question for you, Vinay, is what is, like you'd say, the biggest takeaway that you learned in those uh, three degrees from those three different universities? Like, what do you say is the single biggest learning that you had in your time? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, I think I just had a, a curiosity to learn. Um, you know, the British education system at Cambridge was very focused. Uh, I was an elect- electrical engineer, and I think I was pushed to my 
intellectual limits uh, in terms of the rigor of the coursework that I, I had there and the competitiveness of the environment. And I, I just learned, frankly, how to compete and how to survive and how to thrive in a hyper-competitive environment. Going to Stanford, um, it's a very different style of learning in America where you have, frankly, a lot more choice over, over your curriculum and um, frankly found it a lot less intense than the British environment, but it opened my mind up in terms of exploration and discovery and going on more of a personal journey of kind of learning, learning some very, very different things. I studied Japanese for a year. I did a bunch of other things that I wouldn't have otherwise done in a more narrow environment. And um, I then went out to work at Bain for a few years and returned to go to business school. And um, for me, business school was just a finding moment in my life where I was actually extremely happy as a consultant and, and doing well. Um, but um, one of my, um, the leaders at Bain encouraged me to go to business school, thinking it'd be an eye-opening experience for me. And one of the things I loved about the environment at Harvard was the caliber of speakers who came in to, to talk to us, like Warren Buffett, um, you know, the, the CEO of Ford Motor Company, et cetera. We were exposed to leaders from all walks of, of, of life and business. And um, through that journey of discovery over those two years, I, I, I realized what I, what I ultimately wanted to do, which was to be an entrepreneur, maybe took me longer than, than other people to kind of really figure that out and have the confidence. And, and B, um, I think the, the way that you're sort of measured and, and, and uh, scored at Harvard uh, for an MBA is, is based upon your class participation being 50% of your grade. So it made me, it forced me, I'm a natural introvert and it forced me out of my shell to feel more confident speaking up and more succinct and measured with how I delivered my message. That's very interesting. I, I love how you sort of learned the different lessons along the way and how you see sort of those cultural differences between the UK education system and the US. It feels like it, the US is a little bit more driven for this entrepreneurial mindset and really encouraging you to sort of uh, take that route. Is that correct or? Yeah, I would say so. Um, uh, again, the intensity and the rigor of, this, of the British system was, was, was frankly much higher. Um, uh, but the American system was more about you create your own destiny. You create your own pathway through learning and discovery. And um, sometimes choice is difficult and paralyzing. But for me, it was actually refreshing to have um, a panoply of options that I'd never been presented with before. Nice. Uh, and what would you say your turning point was then? So you said you were going down the route as a consultant. You're very happy. Uh, was there sort of like a light bulb moment when you said, okay, yes, definitely, this is my future. This is where I need to be going down. I want to become an entrepreneur now. The light bulb moment for me was... Um, Actually, during an internship at Harvard, I went to Wall Street and um, spent half my summer in, in working in M&A and the other half of the summer working in private equity um, at a bank, actually doing investments in companies. And um, uh, it was, it was the private equity side of things was fun. But when I met the entrepreneurs and, and saw what they were working on, I was more interested in being on the other side of the table rather than just being, you know, a hands, um, hands off financial investor. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, there are some people who are wired a certain way to be either an operator or an investor and there are rare people who can do both. 
But I think in the heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, I, I wanted to be on the other side of the table. Um, you know, as a child, I had, um, you know, demonstrated um, kind of a passion and interest in entrepreneurship. My father actually had a business on the side. He worked at Ford Motor Company, but he had a sideline business that he was very passionate about. And I helped him with. Uh, I myself at age 11 used to go buy um, records um, from um, from record stores that were highly discounted, but I knew my friends would pay higher, higher, higher prices for and mark them up and sell them. So as an 11 year old, I was a little micro entrepreneur. I just think I got caught up in, in maybe being risk averse and being cautious and kind of going down the establishment path of being educated correctly and working at the right institutions before I felt, you know, really strongly that I was ready to kind of take that risk. And honestly, when I came to Austin um, to join Trilogy Software, I joined them because it felt like it was going to be a very entrepreneurial environment. Turns out that I wasn't a great culture fit for the company or it wasn't a great culture fit for me. And um, the catalyst for me to actually become an entrepreneur was actually getting fired from Trilogy Software, where I had sort of a different point of view to the CEO and um, that was what led to me being fired, but it led to me actually having the courage to finally go do my own thing and start my first company. I think it was a kernel that was inside me always, but you know, I think like a lot of people, I needed a push, you know, like a bird being pushed out of a nest almost to Sleeping actually giants. fly and, and do it. Yeah, very nice. I love that as well, that it led to you being fired before you actually finally took the leap. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about then uh, Convoyo, like uh, what did you do? Like what was the motivation to start the company? Like what was the business built around? Yeah, so, you know, when I, when I kind of first um, assessed what I was going to do, I, I actually approached it very scientifically. I had a whole bunch of different ideas I was trying to, um, assess in terms of different criteria in terms of market opportunity, pain point, validation, etc. I narrowed down to three ideas and eventually I picked um, the idea for Convio based upon two things. One is I saw a large market opportunity, but I saw also an opportunity to do good. And it's rare to find businesses where you can really feel good about what you're doing as well as feel like you can be a commercial success. So I seized upon that. The, um, the light bulb moment was actually when I had volunteered at a, at a fundraising pledge drive at a public broadcasting station. So in America, there are, um, this, there's this notion of public TV um, that is, is not for profit, that you know, raises money from its, from its viewing audience. And uh, my wife was involved in, in that industry and encouraged me to go along for a pledge drive. And literally where, when I started to kind of be a participant in the pledge drive, asking people for their information, writing it onto a piece of card, handing it to the guy who ran fundraising, you know, as a technologist um, or someone working in the tech industry, at least, I just knew there was a better way to solve this problem and, and thought it was ludicrous and, and, and saw a problem. And I think that's, that, that, that moment was because I was open to looking at things around me and seeing problems. I think part of the entrepreneurial journey is starting to have, um, uh, you know, the perception of pain points around you and the cognizance of here are things that you can go solve. And there are things that you observe, I think, when you're more open-minded and attuned to, to, to the world entrepreneurially. Um, 
But of course, you know, just knowing that one organization had pain was not enough to build a real business. So I had to go and do research to validate that the idea was real. So I ended up um, literally cold calling hundreds of nonprofit professionals, having meetings, spending about you know six months just talking to people to validate that the idea was real, that I could build a real business, that it wasn't going to be just a tiny lifestyle business, and that um, I had I, I developed a concrete view in terms of the products that I wanted to build. Then I went ahead and raised venture capital. Today, um, you know, I think businesses have to get further along than just an idea before they raise 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 capital. At least, you know, a full Series A. But I was able to raise back in '99 a full Series A predicated on a concept and a design and uh, I guess you know enough credibility. Yeah, I think it's also a really interesting time as well that you started saying like 1999. Uh, I think as well, Salesforce, similarly, if I'm saying similar time frame, they were founded as well. And really, I think this was probably sort of the birth era of SaaS in its, uh, in its infancy and definitely one of the early days. And to build a SaaS platform for nonprofits, like to be able to manage and promote their, uh, their campaigns and their fundraising. Like, what are some of the, the things like the struggles that you found in the early day when it came to uh, churn and retention specifically? Uh, obviously, like this was all new territory and trying to figure things out along the way. Like, what are some of the interesting things that you came across? Well, I think whenever you are bringing a new concept to market, so just to give a quick view of what Convio did, we were an online fundraising platform. Um, we also help with communications, marketing, and, and public advocacy. But we were driving a paradigm shift from traditional direct mail fundraising and traditional event fundraising to using the internet. And um, whenever you're driving a new category, um, there's a lot of market education that's required to both acquire clients, but also to keep them and to get them to stick. And um, whenever you face a change in the uh, economic owner at, a, at an organization, if there's turnover, you've got to kind of resell a new person on the concept. And so in our case, both actually with Convio and also my current company, Trust Radius, because we're bringing a new idea to market, we find that you have to be cognizant of the fact that you are driving change, that organizations may not have a fixed line item budget for what you do that you're just grabbing from, that you have to justify yourself each year in terms of spend. And secondly, you have to really be acutely focused on helping the organization be successful. In the case of Convio, we actually ended up creating a new position in most of the organizations that we work with. So um, by the end, uh, by the time my company was acquired, we've, we'd probably created about 3,000 sort of unique jobs uh, in the US nonprofit sector of people who are now basically Convio administrators who are doing online fundraising. And driving that change in an industry is non-trivial, right? When when you're selling to a function where there's a defined budget, where there's a um, an existing job, and they're just looking for a better mousetrap, a better tool to do what they do, that's a wholly different proposition from an acquisition and retention perspective from when you're building a new category where you're justifying to a company not just that they need to spend on you, but they need to spend on the human resources that go alongside it. They need to recruit those people. They need to enable them and make them successful. So if you just look at, you know, any company that's a category builder, whether it's us or a business like Gainsight building out, you know, 
you know, the customer success space. Um, there's a different set of requirements that frankly are a higher bar that one has to drive to be successful in building that category, driving acquisition and driving retention. Yeah, definitely. And like you say, it's like sort of the uncharted territory is really not only fighting an uphill battle of trying to convince people about your product, but I can imagine sort of like explaining to them as well the need for additional resources to now actually use the software and uh, to channel it. Uh, the, the topic is all well that's come up quite a bit now as all well you touched on is the like really having that champion in mind and uh, when they leave, then you sort of having to resell back into the organization again. Uh, and it's, it's almost like from scratch, you're getting started within that company. What were some of the things that you realized or that you did to sort of curb this um, at Convio? Well, um, I think, you know, um, I'm not sure we did a world-class job of it at, at Convio. Um, but one of the things that we did do was um, we had uh, pretty good customer marketing where we're communicating to our customers on a frequent basis we were doing sort of halo brand marketing around things that would be pertinent with executives. Uh, we were doing sort of primary research on topics that affected them, like what was happening with respect to things like major giving markets and, and the movement around the internet. Uh, I also think we invested heavily in field-based marketing, which brought current clients in contact with prospective clients and itself, both to engender tighter relationships with current clients as well as um, use them as advocates to acquire new clients as well. And so some of those were some of the things that I think we did would, we did well. Um, now with my new company, Trust Radius, one of the things I'm acutely focused on is driving regular business reviews. Because uh, again, when you're trying to champion a new agenda, a new, a new, a new industry, um, you know, you need to keep educating and keep, keep, keep proselytizing the change uh, because Change is difficult in some companies and it requires adaptation. It requires new people getting involved. And so you can't just view it as a one and done in terms of the education process. You have to be regularly helping people understand the journey that they're on and helping them down that pathway, viewing it as a continuous, a con you know, a continuum of both just getting more skilled at using your product, but also more skilled at being strategically successful uh, with the products and the strategy shift that you're driving as well. You know, in our case, we're trying to drive the movement away from, uh, you know, traditional forms of marketing where brands put out just their own, you know, messaging, um, salespeople show up, et cetera, and make their own claims. But what we've learned definitively is that buyers put a lot more stock in what their peers have to say and that they also want, transparency they want to know the whole truth before they enter into a relationship they want to know the cons as well as the pros they want to know the use cases where a product excels and the use cases where a product falls down they want to know whether it integrates with the rest of their stack etc and uh, today um, you know brands have not always been uh, highly forthcoming about um, about their pros and their limitations um, you know, often the conversation is purely about where they think they excel and, and, and that may or may not jive exactly with what the customer finds valuable. So the change that we're trying to drive in our industry is helping technology brands adapt to the fact that buyers are looking for this kind of information, are empowered to find this kind of information now themselves, 
and that they, if they do not find the information that gives them confidence, they don't buy or they buy someone else who does give them confidence based upon the evidence that they share with them. And so um, in our particular case, helping uh, technology brands adapt to the new buyer and to the new modes of engaging with them is not just something we do in a sales cycle where we sell them on the concept. The education and the um, communication about how to be successful is an enduring process where my CSMs will work with their points of contact on a weekly basis to help drive tactics that we need to do to be successful. But we will come back to a customer on a quarterly basis to an executive and give them not just a frame of how they're doing, but what they need to be doing to be successful. We bring ideas to the table. We bring benchmarks to the table to say, this is what best practice looks like. And I think that mode of engagement is essential when you're trying to drive again, a new category and, new, and change in an industry where, you know, the status quo is not good enough. Absolutely. We actually touched on this with John Gleason from Keep Trucking, where they similarly are trying to establish sort of a new space uh, focused on like a new industry that uh, wasn't typically used to software. And one of their big strategies was around these uh, business reviews. They're called executive business reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to touch them on a quarterly basis, at least. So, these reviews themselves, like when you go into them, what sort of information do you come into it? So you mentioned like looking to give uh, best uh, tactics and advice. Uh, what are some of the things that go into a review uh, when speaking to customers? Well, I think the first thing is understanding what's important to the customer. So we have, you know, technology brands who engage with us for a variety of reasons. Some are just focused on their online reputation. They know that buyers are doing diligence on them before they buy and they want to make sure that they have um, an accurate representation on trust radius, that they have an at scale representation on trust radius because they, you know, rightly believe that people want to see a critical viable uh, mass of reviews to have confidence in the data. And they want to make sure that the reviews tell their unique competitive narrative effectively. And so um, oftentimes, um, the first thing that we're trying to do with a company is, is help them build their online reputation, but the opportunity beyond that speaks to how they can be using voice of customer in their own internal company and in their own go to market channels to, to drive improvement and gains that could be enabling their sales team to use, uh, quotes and customer stories from reviews in order to open doors and remove friction and compete more effectively. It could be using um, content from a review on a landing page dynamically to improve conversion. It could be using data um, from um, our site to improve things like targeting to be able to target, you know, high intent buyers, or it could be using feedback from reviews to actually um, improve your product or make sure your positioning aligns to how the market really, really values you. And so, you know, when you think about all of those things, it's a broad set of potential sources of value and you can't possibly cover all of those in a single EBR or in a single review. So what we seek to do is to try and understand in the relationship with the client, where they are in their maturity curve and what's most important to them at this point in time. For one company, it might be prioritizing sales enablement. 
for another company, they may still be in the kind of like content building phase and online reputation phase. Another company may be focused, hyper-focused on how do they use data to do more effective targeted marketing. So my point, number one, is it's contextual. You have to understand the customer, where they're at, their priorities and where they are in their journey. And then B, um, uh, what I like to do is to kind of bring uh, my team to bring insights to the table to say, you know, here are, um, here are pages on your website that look um, ripe for social proof, uh, that if you included social proof on this page, you'd likely to see a conversion lift. And then bring examples from other clients who are doing things well that, you know, that particular client from, can learn from. So that's really kind of the arc of an EBR. The other thing that I found clients really leaning in on is data, where because we sit on an enormous amount of data about products where we can tell a company, you know, here is your share of audience in your category. Here's how you stack rank against your competitors. Here's a new competitor that's rising up in your market that you may not have heard about. Here's um, who you're being compared to. And here are the types of brands that are researching you. There's a lot of value in distilling that data for them beyond what they can get in our products and having a conversation around the so what's. Um, you know, for example, if a company uh, thinks it's competing about, uh, you know, with brands X, Y, and Z, and in reality, they have different competitors who are, um, uh, you know, occupying um, uh, uh, time, um, it might change their strategy around content they build for their sales team. Uh, and oftentimes I find that um, brands are not fully aware of who their buyers are comparing them to or have a um, maybe a different view than the reality that we see on our site. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. Like you, you touched on quite a lot of things in the last couple of minutes. Uh, one, a voice of customer, which I want to touch on in a brief second. But I think the interesting thing as well is like what Trust Radio speaks to is this sort of shift in uh, the buyer's trust when it comes to actually purchasing software. I think things have become a lot easier to develop software. So now anybody uh, with basic knowledge uh, can get something up and running in no time. And there's just a sheer amount. If you see like the MarkTech landscape as an example of how much has grown in the last seven years, like trust and like user reviews is really becoming the go-to place for people to make these decisions and decide on what's good out in the market. Uh, Bearing this in mind, you mentioned you help companies with voice of customer. And I think this is often like some of the, the gaps that we've talked about previously as well is that typically startups as well, they tend to maybe get a little bit too technical in their copy or they get a little bit too salesy. And there's often this gap between what the product actually does and what their marketing promises. Yeah. Um, how have you seen customers use the voice of customer effectively, not only from like a product development standpoint, but actually when it comes to their marketing and uh, their material? Yeah. Um, a really good example is the IT company Soloens. Um, we, we run a very comprehensive review program for them across, you know, their entire product line and they're collecting kind of thousands and thousands of data points. Um, the reviews are really robust, averaging four to 600 words. There's just a lot of feedback and insight in that content. And so one of the big epiphanies they had was that some of the um, 
product marketing messages that they were using at a product line level to talk about what was most important um, about their products were often not the same points that their customers hit on as being most valuable. So they were able to glean from that feedback how to re-emphasize the sequence, you know, what was most important to their buyers, uh, to their customers, uh, with a viewpoint that if it's important to their customer, it's probably important to their prospective customer as well. So they were able to fine tune um, what they chose to communicate about. Um, the, um, another example, uh, more from a driving kind of product strategy perspective, we work with a, let's say a top, I can't name them, but a top 10 uh, global technology company um, has a mixture of hardware and software products. And they do a lot of customer insight gathering through client advisory boards, NPS surveys, et cetera. But one of the challenges with those methods is that you get sample bias. Uh, often the people on a cab may be your North American clients, your largest customers, et cetera, that have all the, the loudest voices, the last person that you touch is the sample bias and this sort of last, last, last communication bias as well. And what, what they've shared with me is that because Trust Radius drives really in-depth feedback and because we're doing it at scale across customer segments and geographies, they feel that they get a more statistically valid quantitative view about what their customers are saying about them. And, you know, they're going well beyond how they're being scored. They're actually looking at the text of what people are saying and kind of mining that text. We've even had some customers who've sort of taken the text from their reviews and done sort of offline analytical processing of sentiments based upon what people are saying as well. Very interesting. And then from that as well, like from a product development standpoint, they would then take those insights back into product, into the development cycle. Yes. And, and, you know, when we think about whole products being not just the features, but, you know, usability support, um, et cetera, um, often you'll see very, very clear feedback about training deficiencies or um, support issues as well. And so many of the companies we work with actually have clarity now, objective third-party vetted clarity on how they're actually performing from a training and, and support perspective. And we'll use that to drive improvement in those operations as well. And, you know, the, the interesting thing here, it takes a little bit of courage to sort of embrace this because, um, you know, sometimes uh, customers aren't going to be completely glowing in their feedback. But this is the reality of the world we live in today. Um, it's really, really hard to hide from the truth. Um, people are going to find it out. If they don't find it out pre-purchase, they'll find it out post-purchase and they'll be an unhappy customer and they won't renew and they won't uh, advocate for you. So I've always been a big believer that sort of transparency is ultimately inevitable. And in a world where like, you know, that's driven by SaaS, where the switching cost between products is coming down every day, you have to win based upon building the very best products and delivering the best service. So being acutely focused on listening to your customers is critical. Being acutely focused on actioning and the insights to actually drive product improvement, um, you know, whole product improvement around support, usability, et cetera, is absolutely critical. 
and also realizing that the modern buyer no longer is going to carte blanche trust what you say as a brand or what your salespeople say. They're becoming increasingly skeptical and you are better served to put the whole truth out there because the buyer is going to feel confident they're entering into a relationship knowing what they're getting. And that just speeds things up and it actually creates brand preference. And having that trust of the customer is probably the number one uh, thing that you can earn and you can have as well. Yes, very, very interesting. Vinay, I think like one of the things I wanted to touch on and ask you about was in the context of lead scoring. Now you mentioned sort of uh, this trust aspect being really critical and people needing to uh, have these references and resources and really putting it out there as a company, like being open and transparent. But have you done any work with companies to understand uh, the quality of leads when they're coming from uh, sites like yours, Trust Radius? Like, is there anything that you've done there to understand uh, if somebody's reviewing a site, the likelihood to buy, or then on the inverse, like how likely are they to retain after they've come through a channel uh, like Trust Radius? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So um, there are a lot of sites out there whose focus is driving leads. Um, that the whole site is really optimized around driving a form fill or an external click. Um, that's not how I designed Trust Radius. My vision in, in designing Trust Radius was to be a site and a content base that is used across the buyer's journey. People certainly use us in the discovery phase when they have a high-level need. They, they think they need a certain class of products. They'll come to our site. They'll compare products. They'll look at our market visuals that we call trust maps. They'll look at our lists of available products, and they will uh, narrow down their choice. They will come to us when they're comparing two products side by side and want to pick one. Um, and we uh, they'll also come to us when they're in deep evaluation with one product to make sure uh, they know what questions to ask the salesperson uh, to validate whether the salesperson's claims are correct and even to build a business case with their, with their boss as to why they should purchase a product. So when you think about that buyer's journey and that buyer's journey is happening on our site and on the brand's site and channels as well, my viewpoint is that the value metric is really influence, not a lead. Uh, someone may already know about Hotjar and they're coming to my site to research it, um, but they, they may not result in, quote, unquote, being a net, net new lead. And so just narrowly looking at the world from, from uh, the numbers of hand raises is, is, is not the right way to kind of understand the impact that reviews are having either on a third-party site or potentially in your own channels. So, you know, when I look at the value framework, we look at it in a few, a few kind of basic ways. Certainly, we'll drive some, some level of hand raises from our site. Um, but again, the site isn't optimized for that. The site is optimized for being a true research venue. But we can statistically share with someone, here are um, the numbers of sort of the size of the audience that you are influencing on, your, on our site. Here are the actual brands that you're influencing. And here's how you stack rank in your category in terms of audience share, how you're positioned, etc. And so helping them understand the value of influence is really, really important. From a hard demand generation perspective, we can also do things like help them remarket to 
um, the, the entire category to drive leads through their own channels. So we'll give them the ability to do things like put a tracking pixel on our site and understand who are the people in market who are researching analytics tools in general and give them the ability to kind of remarket to that audience and drive hand, you know, hand raises leads in their own channels. We can also provide an intent data stream that if you're doing account-based marketing can help you point your reps or your marketing programs at the buyers who are not just attractive but have purchasing intent as well. Um, because voice of customer is so important and is ultimately what the buyer wants to, wants to, wants to hear, a large part of our strategy is actually helping brands take uh, voice of customer from trust radius and use it in their own channels. So for example, uh, Trenkai in the PR space uses um, syndicated content feeds from trust radius to create different landing pages against different competitors. Um, um, other companies do it based upon different industries and different personas. And what we typically find is that the presence of that third party social proof increases conversion in an AB test. And so if you're spending money on PPC and, you know, advertising to drive people to a page, if you can get 15, 20% more yield on every visit you have, that's really valuable for organic traffic. It may be a 30 to 50% lift. If you use content in nurture and that content compels people to take action, that's that's part of the value equation as well. If you yeah. arm your salespeople to be more effective at using customer proof to validate themselves, to they improve their win rate or they shorten the cycle time for a for a deal for an enterprise sales cycle, that's part of the value equation. So, while my industry started as really being kind of a lead arbitrage business, and many of my competitors still operate that way today, that is not my worldview. My worldview is that we're going through a fundamental shift in terms of how buyers buy and how sellers need to sell. And it's more about how do you use voice of customer to influence people and how do you use it to uh, improve conversion at every stage of the buyer buyer's journey. Yeah, I love that. So at the surface, like really the focus is all around getting that trust and building up as a review site that people come to for like just getting reviews essentially. And then on the back of that, you have other services that you focus uh, to your customers, but one of them is not driving leads. The next thing I mentioned, because you mentioned is all sort of like that value uh, matrix and they're going along uh, measuring value at different stages of the buyer's journey. Uh, and I definitely see all of those. Like one of the questions that I was wondering and asked is uh, when it comes to churn and retention, um, are there any customers that you've seen when it comes to the sort of social proof and the customer reviews that have been exposed to trust radius have, have they seen any increases when it comes to journal retention? Because you touched on the beginning, like if people aren't truthful up front and they don't know, like they're going to sign up for one month and they're going to churn later. But really, if you have a really good standing when it comes to customer reviews, you've got trust and you built it up from people visiting a site like yours, have you worked with any customers to understand what that impact is? Uh, and if like the different audiences, like generic somebody coming from a Facebook or Google versus somebody who's been exposed to a review on your site, like do they see a, an increase in long-term retention with these uh, audiences? That's a really interesting question in terms of how someone incepts whether they will actually be a long-term better customer. Uh, my hypothesis would be yes, but it's not something I don't believe anyone has quantified. Um, where we where we do have some indications and some anecdotes of of boosting retention is really in a couple of areas. So you know 
um, we work with one large company in the HR space who found in their reviews that they were being dinged on support. That became, you know, an unequivocal clear case. They didn't have to dispute that inside the company. They had clear data that said something needed to change. So they fixed their support function as a result of that feedback. I'm sure that improved retention. Absolutely. What we were able to do with them was then go back to those customers who who dinged them on support and asked them to, to, to state how they felt about support today. And they saw a material improvement in their rating on support as a result, which both gave them the validation that they had indeed fixed the problem, but also gave them an accurate new representation in the marketplace, whereas they may have been uh, hurt with a bad support reputation previously. Um, another example is where um, we can tell companies if some of their customers are actively comparing and shopping for a new solution. So one company in the finance, in the fintech space, um, was able to see from the intent data that we provide to them that accounts that they suspected but might be at risk but weren't sure were indeed shopping actively and that gave them the ability to approach those accounts and really kind of triage them more effectively. Uh, it helped them point their customer success efforts at the customers who needed it the most sorely in order to drive a renewal. Uh, and then the third example is where, um, um, you know, you find through a review that there's a customer that does need intervention of some kind. Maybe they have a configuration issue. Maybe they have a misperception around a training, et cetera. And so, um, you know, frankly, just commenting on a review and sending, sending someone to the right resource or, or using that review to then drive um, an interaction from an SE or a technical person who can help them with their configuration helps get ahead of the problem. All too often, customers will suffer in pain and suffer in silence, not knowing that they've, uh, if they actually just talk to the vendor, they could actually find a better solution and resolution. Definitely. And I think as well, like that's an interesting concept in its own is that the feedback or the customer reviews that you're getting on sites like yourself, it's un like it's direct, it's unbiased. So typically like when, as customers, when you're trying to collect customer feedback from your users, uh, you tend to get some sort of bias in it, but it can like go back to that sort of honesty, transparency. And I think maybe the directional feedback that you're getting on those reviews is going to be a lot clearer and a lot more honest uh, from users. Right. So the, the, the last thing I think I wanted to touch on today, there's two questions I have for you. First is like, what are some of the, the tips that you would give to companies who want to sort of increase their customer reviews and uh, get people to start like speaking about them and dropping comments? What are the, the, the tips and tricks for driving reviews? Um, I think, um, you know, just make it part of the fabric of your customer engagement. So, you know, think about the, the journey points when a customer, you know, first goes live, um, is an ideal point to make the ask, um, when a customer renews, et cetera. Um, you know, just, just, just make it part of, of the journey. If you have customer events, et cetera, that's an ideal time to source reviews as well. Um, Clearly, what we have found in our industry is that um, uh, incentives do matter. Um, people rarely kind of wake up and decide they want to review a piece of business software. 
they have to be asked and they often have to be incented because you're asking for 20 minutes of their time to write something. So we found incentives to be a necessary part of what we do with our clients to help drive reviews. And the other thing I would say is that, um, um, uh, that um, if you're going to make um, the effort to actually drive reviews, make sure that they tell your narrative. You know, you have one shot at getting a customer to kind of give that feedback. You want to make sure that feedback is maximally useful. And so um, I'm a big believer in actually making sure that the, uh, the reviews um, are kind of optimized to kind of help express the narrative of the product and the differentiation. Uh, I think like going forward as well, it's going to become more and more of an important channel. Uh, so being able to understand how to drive that throughout the process and making it like an embedded part of the company uh, is going to be a critical component in winning in the future as well in this new market and the way customers are moving and really lacking trust in traditional uh, marketing methods. So last question I got for you, Vinay. Uh, interested to hear your thoughts on this and going to throw you into a hypothetical scenario. Uh, let's say like one day, you know, you start a new job, a new role at a company, you come in and churn and retention is really not great at all at this company. And you've been tasked to try and turn things around now. Um, with your experience, like as a CEO in the two previous company, in the previous company and now a trust radius, uh, what would be some of the first things that you would look to do in the first two to three months? Map the current customer lifecycle. Um, speak to the people on the front lines of the team to understand why they believe, um, you know, are the root causes of retention. Speak to customers directly. Um, and then, you know, layer on a more systematic way to kind of get customer feedback on a repeat, you know, statistically relevant basis. Um, but, Dig, dig in, kind of get my hands around the problem, join onboarding calls, join, um, you know, client success engagement calls, just understand how we're engaging today. If the company, I mean, it obviously depends on the ACV of the product and, and the type of customer that you sell to, but as long as it's a mid-market enterprise product, um, institute an EBR process, because I think that is a strategy that I've seen work really well. And, um, and just drives a lot of learnings as well as a lot of value for the client. And I've seen it kind of move the needle on retention and, and net retention as well. Very nice. Like having a really systematic approach from beginning uh, to end. Well, uh, Vinay, thanks very much for joining today. It's been a really a pleasure listening to your story, background, how you got to where you are today, uh, the learnings you've had so far and like how companies now can use uh, customer reviews uh, to further help drive uh, growth and uh, like sustainable growth that's ensuring that companies uh, that do sign up for the product are going to stick around with their product. Uh, thanks for joining, Vinay. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Cheers. Uh, and that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm, and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.